Exile is not a word we use very often in modern America. It originally referred to a, a very ancient punishment where you would be banished from your beloved hometown or home country for a period of years or even the rest of your life. You'd be forced to start over in a, in a foreign place with foreign people and, and unusual customs and different languages or accents and dialects and different behaviors. For someone who was raised from birth to love their home city or their home country and to really draw a lot of their identity from it, it's something that we maybe can't appreciate very well in our culture. But, but for someone like that, this was one of the most severe punishments you could have, to be forced away from your home, your family, your friends, everything you knew. Exile is not something we think about very often in modern America because usually we are so comfortable here that it just feels like home. We generally know where we're going to sleep at night. We usually know where we're going to get our next meal, and most of the time we know where our next paycheck is coming from. We generally feel safe. Usually our smartphones work and our cars work and our flat panel TVs work. And so modern America generally feels like, but it is not our home. We are in exile. As believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And as we talked about last week, so is our eternal inheritance. That's where our real property is that will last. This world is our place of exile. And while we may have forgotten that for all of our comfortable lives, I think that if we open up our eyes and we look around at what is going on in this world, we begin to realize that maybe we're mistaken. If we look at the violence that has erupted in our country this week, if we look at the violence in Orlando just a few weeks before that, if we look around the world at the at the bombs and things in Turkey and in Brussels and in Paris and in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, we begin to realize this is exile. As we survey the discouraging and distasteful and dysfunctional political landscape of our country, as we watch the gradual tearing apart of our moral fabric as a people, as we watch the crumbling of our spiritual foundation in a country that is increasingly post-Christian, we begin to realize this is exile. When we see that the basic norms and expectations of civil society are breaking down before us, where simple assumptions like you will live to get home from the grocery store or you will live to go home to your family after a shift spent protecting the rights of democracy in this country, you begin to realize this is exile. The Bible has always been clear. This is exile. That our home is in heaven. And that while this world could be better than it is at present, and it can assuredly be worse than it is, it is exile. 
For believers in Christ, it has always been exile, and it always will be until Christ returns and ushers in the new earth. Peter, in fact, addresses his letter right off the bat to the elect exiles. That is you and me. He is talking about Christians here. In fact, exile is a recurring word in 1 Peter. Our passage today addresses what is easily the most fundamental question we should be asking once it sinks into us, that we are, in fact, in exile, which is what should we do while we're in exile? Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Peter writes, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter tells us right off the bat who this message is for. It's right at the beginning of verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Well, the one who judges impartially according to our deeds is God, of course. So if you call on God as your father, if you view yourself as a child of God, then this message is for you. That's what he's saying. He says, listen up if you are a Christian or claim that you are a Christian. Because if God is your Father, then Peter says that we must live to glorify God during our exile. That is his bottom line. And he makes two central points related to living to glorify God in our exile. The first is that we must live to glorify God every day of our lives. Verse 17 is the only command in this passage, if you look back to the original language. It is Peter's main point, right? He's, get this, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The rest of the passage is explaining why this is a command to us. But before we explore that, we must understand what Peter is instructing us to do first half is to conduct yourselves with fear. And this is a phrase that can cause some misunderstanding to the modern English ear. Because we use fear, it means something that has very specific meaning in English that is not the biblical meaning of the word. Right? Peter is not telling us to shake in our boots and quake in terror about God. Biblical fear is quite a lot different Okay, so what he is talking about here is not about being scared. And, and I recognize that there is fear in our country right now. There is fear about going out in public. There is fear about gathering in public places. 
There is fear about just running the routine errands of the day. There is fear about going to work. There is fear about the direction our nation is going in. But that is not what Peter is talking about. Because biblical fear is not about being scared. It is the fear of God, which describes awe and reverence and respect. Right? Biblical fear is about having the appropriate attitude that we show to the creator of the universe. And it has nothing to do with terror. This is why so many verses are like Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, because the beginning of knowledge is respect and reverence and awe for the Lord so that you are in a position to hear and understand what he has to say. Fear of God is about showing deep respect and amazement towards an eternal being of infinite power who spoke the universe into creation, who created us in his image, and who has provided us with every blessing that we have. We so often today emphasize the amazing truth, and it is truth, right, that the immortal God of the universe loves us, and he gives us from his endless grace and mercy. But in the process, we can forget the need to respect and honor him. And so Peter reminds us, we must conduct ourselves with fear, with that reverence and respect and awe towards the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing and ever-present. Another way to phrase that, that that is conveying the same idea, but might be a little easier on American ears, modern ears, I don't say this to tickle your ears, I say this just to help get past a little bit of a linguistic barrier, is that we must glorify God. He says that we are to do that throughout the time of your exile. As I mentioned, he already describes us as exiles right off the bat, verse 1, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And from his perspective, we are citizens of heaven, because that is where our eternal inheritance lies. Paul agrees in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. So while you may think of yourself as a citizen of a particular country here, Heaven is your actual, ultimate, and eternal citizenship if you are a believer in Christ. For the time being, we are in exile here in a fallen world that desperately needs restoration. And so throughout the time of our exile, for the entire time of our exile, not some of the time, not a lot of the time, not when we feel like it, not almost all of the time, the entire time of our exile, the entire time we are alive, every single day, we must conduct ourselves with fear of the Lord until we reach our eternal inheritance. If we call ourselves Christians, if we say that we are children of God, then in every minute of every hour of every day, we are commanded to live in a way that glorifies Him, that respects Him, that reverences Him, that, that obeys Him, that reflects our awe of the Lord. And what we say and what we do and what we think and what we look at matters in every moment of our lives. 
Peter gives us some additional specifics right after this passage. In verse 22, he tells us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And I think it's important to note that, that while conducting ourselves with fear is ultimately directed towards God, all of the immediate instructions that Peter gives us on how to do it relate to how we interact with other people, right? That we must love one another earnestly, that we must love one another purely, without being nasty, without lying, without being envious or slanderous towards one another. That in fact, the most immediate application of the instruction to glorify God is actually about how we treat every person we interact with who is created in his image. Peter says that when we are in exile and we are angry or we are scared or we are appalled at what we see, and I hope that everyone is, our response cannot be to use the tools of the world. Our response must be love. We must respond to hatred and violence and fear with love and honesty and integrity and mercy and justice. And that being in exile doesn't mean that we, we hunker down in a little fortress of our home. We don't turtle down and ignore the world and just wait to punch our ticket to heaven. Because that fails to honor the God who placed us here in the midst of his creation at this corner amongst these communities and who commanded us through his son to be salt and light to this community. The church universal and this church in particular are called to be out in the world, actively relieving suffering, actively combating injustice. But always with the understanding that we are temporary exiles in a fallen world where there will always be suffering to relieve and injustice to combat. Being salt and light means being faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, even as we work to flavor and preserve our community. That is the role, biblically, of salt 2,000 years ago. Even as we seek to preserve and enrich the community around us, we must be faithful to proclaim the good news because we know that our living hope is not built on making this world perfect. That will never happen short of Christ's return. It is based on entering our eternal inheritance after a lifetime of living to glorify God and bless his creation in his name. That's the command. That's the what of this passage, that we are to live to glorify God every day of our lives. And Peter then proceeds to tell us why says, we live to glorify God because Christ died for us. Verses 18 to 21 make it really, really clear. We do not do these things to bless our community. We, do not, we are not called to be salt. We do not 
do the good and the right and the proper things in order to earn our ticket to heaven. Instead, we are out there to be loving and flavoring and preserving a fallen world because Jesus already bought our way into heaven. And he paid a terrible price for it. And our gratitude should cause all those good things to come out of us into our community. Now, as I walk through the rest of this passage and I talk about why we should glorify God, according to Peter, I will be referencing four short verses from the book of Romans. You may notice that I put them into my sermons every so many weeks, right? And a lot of you know them as the Romans Road, as a way to guide someone's faith in Jesus Christ. And I and I use them not only because they're applicable every so often in my sermons, but to help them soak into our collective memory. They are brief and memorable, and they can help any of us to explain our faith to anyone we encounter, to share the good news of the gospel with those who need to hear it. And, and the Romans Road is certainly not the only way to share the gospel, right? And if you've got a better way, you are welcome to use it. But this is a memorable way. It works well with the messages. It's pretty straightforward. I'm not a great memorizer, and I can memorize it. So Peter continues in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And his words are very powerful here, that we were ransomed from our feudal ways, from our futility. Now, ransom is what you pay to free a hostage, right? Someone who's been kidnapped, someone who's a prisoner. And Peter says that if we don't have faith in Jesus, or before we had faith in Jesus, we had been kidnapped and held prisoner by the feudal ways of our forefathers. Peter's first readers were Gentile believers whose ancestors had literally worshipped idols, and, and that was clearly futile because they were just worshipping a bunch of statues. But today's world is not really all that different. Because just like the first century world, there are no shortage of people out there trying to figure out how to live right in order to reach God. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, humans were made with eternity in their hearts. That's why there is so much religion and spirituality in every corner of the earth. That's why there will always be so much interest in spiritual matters. That's why there are so many religious leaders and gurus and, and, and self-proclaimed prophets and self-help experts out there telling you how to live in order to find God. But the reality today is no different than it was 2,000 years ago that all those efforts to get to God on our own terms are futile. Because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is perfect. God is holy. Holiness really means separation. He is set apart from us by His perfection. And the only way to bridge that separation is perfection. And we will never cross that ourselves. I'm sorry to tell you. This is news to you. Please, let's talk afterwards. Our situation was futile. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how hard we prayed, right? no matter how much we read, no matter how much we gave to charity, no matter what 
good deeds we did or how well we behaved, we still messed up sometimes. We could do well for a long time, but we will still sin inevitably. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, spending all eternity separated from God. That's what we were prisoners to. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, that's what you are still a prisoner to. A slave to sin. That is ultimate futility. And yet Peter assures us that we were ransomed from that futility. And how is that accomplished? And how could that gap be broken? What could possibly ransom us from this futility? Well, Peter tells us in verses 18 and 19 that we were ransomed, not with perishable things like such as silver and gold. And, and it's worth noting, right? Silver and gold aren't really perishable. They don't really go away. You can melt them, but they don't cease to exist. But he's saying in comparison to what he's going to talk about next, silver and gold are worthless. They're just junk. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Romans 5, 8, and 9 explain, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since very early in the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed to pay for sin. You would take the blood of a perfect animal, you would spill it out to pay for a person's sins. And the Old Testament standard of what was good enough to be offered up to God was that it had to be a perfect animal, and the phrase for that was, without blemish or spot. The words Peter uses to describe the sacrifice of Jesus. But all those animal sacrifices just demonstrated one thing. Futility. Because no amount of perfect animals could ever be good enough to cover all the future sin of a person much less the sin of the world. And so every single rule that's in the Old Testament about animal sacrifice and every example of an animal being sacrificed in the Old Testament, they all point forward to the one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. The sacrifice that is enough to clean the sins of the whole world, the past sins, the present sins, and the future sins, the death, of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. That God's perfect and infinite and eternal and holy Son was nailed to a cross to die. And how do we know that this sacrifice was enough? Because verse 21 describes God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Because Jesus rose from the dead and he was glorified and he appeared to many witnesses, we can be confident that his power over sin and death is complete. Just like he had promised before he ever went to that cross. Ultimately, Peter explains that we were ransomed so that we could have faith and hope. 
Peter concludes verses 20 and 21. He, has forene- he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Even though Jesus is eternal, he has always existed in fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who is finally revealed to the world in the first century. And why did he take on a human nature to be revealed? Why was he born in a stable in Bethlehem? For our sake, the sake of believers around the world and across the centuries. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope would be in God. Jesus suffered and died and rose again so that we could be ransomed from slavery to sin, ransomed from being a hostage to the world. And all we have to do to accept that freedom is to put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Romans 10.9 concludes our journey on the Romans road. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's our great good news of the gospel. That we were hostages to our sin, that we were futilely trying to escape on our own strength and our own ideas and our own plans, and that they could never do the job. And so God sent his eternal son into the world to be the perfect Passover lamb sacrificing his body and pouring out his blood in an excruciating death so that everyone who calls on him in faith might live forever in the presence of God. But this good news also means that how we live matters because Christ paid a terrible price for our faith and for our freedom. And we need to take that seriously. We need to live to glorify God while we are here in exile because Christ suffered and died for us. Our behavior matters because God sacrificed his most precious thing, his eternal son, for you and for me so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be restored to right relationship with God the Father. And so we must strive every day that we are exiled on this earth to conduct ourselves with godly fear, to glorify God by our actions and our thoughts and our words with all reverence and awe for God and with love for one another. In the face of terrible injustice, we can never respond with malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander or hate, but only with the love of God. There will be days when we will fail at this, and God knows that. But we are still commanded to live like that. Not because it's going to earn us our salvation, but because our salvation was earned for us by Jesus the Christ. And we should be so grateful for that, that this fact should change 
every aspect of the way we live our lives. And so the question to take away and think about for the rest of this week and beyond is, has every aspect of my life been changed by this fact? Am I glorifying God in everything I do and think and say? It's a difficult challenge, but the good news is we are not alone on this. We are not doing this in our own strength. That as we grow in our knowledge of God's Word, and that means we need to be doing that, that as we become more consistent in prayer, and that means we need to be doing that, that as we are more active in worship, not just here to have an experience, but to throw ourselves before the living God in worship and awe, that as we grow in the ministry that he has specifically set aside for each one of us here, that God's Spirit will transform us and make us more and more like Jesus. And on those occasions when we fail, we can rely on 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we grow more and more aware of the fact that we are exiles in this land, I pray that you will help and strengthen us and guide us to live in fear, in reverence, and for your glory. In every aspect of what we do, that we would be the salt and light you have commanded us to be in a community that desperately needs restoration and healing. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You've heard the good news and you've heard the challenge that comes with it. So if you have not yet trusted in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then this good news is for you. Right? You don't have to labor on your own anymore to try and reach God. You don't have to pay a great price for admission to God's kingdom. You just have to believe. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died and rose from the grave, and that that leads you to confess your sins to God. And then you too will be instantly ransomed from futility by the precious blood of the Lamb. So as the music plays, if that describes you, if that is your situation, I pray that you would come forward and pray with us this morning. And for everyone else, we have already been ransomed. And so the challenge is to live every moment of every day in the fear of the Lord, to rely on his power and his strength, to conduct ourselves in a way that glorifies him every moment. We've been bought at a great price, and that purchase comes with expectations from the one who bought our freedom. So I'd urge you to use these next few minutes to examine yourselves in your conduct. Are there areas of your life that are not yet glorifying to God? Are there areas of life that are not characterized by fear of the Lord? And in those areas, ask for God's forgiveness and his help, for he is faithful.